Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. As I communicated way back in May and last week at our service, we're kind of taking a short break from our series based on the Gospel of Luke. Over the next five Sundays, starting today, we're doing a new sermon series titled Frontline Sundays, put together by the London of Institute Contemporary Christianity, founded by the great and late John Stott. The series is actually an extension of last week's sermon on Luke 10, 1 to 24, being on mission with Jesus. So through this series, we want to encourage and motivate you to explore what being on mission looks like in your context. And here's a quick overview of the series. Over a month, around 6% of the UK gather together to worship Jesus. It feels like we're too few to make a difference. But the reality is, Monday to Saturday, God has us. Scattered in the world, connecting to hundreds and thousands of people. So wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you do, you can make all the difference in the world. And on Sundays, when we gather together, we strengthen and empower one another to be sent out again for life on our front lines. So that's in essence what the series is about. Uh, okay, that's the sermon. We can all have morning tea. <laughs> In last week's sermon, I made the key point uh, that God's expansive and multifaceted mission for Jesus outlined in Luke chapter 4 has become our mission. That is, the Spirit of the Lord, the same Spirit of the Lord who anointed Jesus, has anointed each and every one of us to preach good news to the poor, sent us to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so when Jesus instructed us to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field, he meant for us to see that we are the workers called to make all the difference in the world in whatever context we're in. And we refer them, refer to them as our front lines. And there are many and varied. For all of us, our front line is our neighbors, people that we live next door to, our neighborhoods, our immediate and extended families, and our friends. For many of us, our front line could be our workplaces. For others, it could be where you're studying, where you regularly volunteer, exercise, shop, or your hobby interest clubs you are part of. For those who are retirees amongst us, your front line could be your not yet believing grandchildren. You get the picture. 
In many of our front lines, we may be the only Christians. Think about that. In many of our front lines, we may be the only Christian present there to model God's character, to model good and purposeful work, to minister grace and love, to change and shape culture, to be God's mouthpiece of truth and justice, and to be messengers of the gospel. This morning, I want to cement this biblical idea through 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It's up on the screen. I'll read that to us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkle with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. The small minority scattered groups of mostly Gentile Christians across the five Roman provinces in what is modern-day Turkey, experiencing sporadic suffering and persecution for their faith. So you can picture in your mind how they might be possibly feeling fear, disillusionment, uh, discouragement. Uh, They could be uh, experiencing hardship. Uh, and that's the conditions that they're living under. And Paul, Peter writes to strengthen their faith in God and to help them make sense of their predicament. And he does this by reminding them who they are through the use of two pivotal and theologically rich words. And the first is elect. Paul writes to them and tells them, uh, Peter writes to them and tells them, you are God's chosen and elect. And the word elect, it is a common designation for Israel as God's people in the Old Testament. Peter reminds the scattered communities that having been set apart by God and for God through Jesus' death, according to the riches of God's grace, they have become God's people. And as the people of God, they may be small in numbers, but they share in the promises given to Abraham and his, and his descendants in Genesis 12. Like them, they are blessed of God. They are blessed by God. And they are to be God's instrument of his blessing wherever they go, whoever they are, in whatever condition they find themselves in. Furthermore, they are also to see that their individual their collective salvation stories are part of and fit into the greatest redemptive story ever told. That is the Bible. It is so, so, so important for us as believers, as Christians, to remember that the Bible is not a collection of disjointed narratives and verses, but a remarkably unified collection of books that tell one epic story of God's salvation, historical redemptive purpose for humankind fulfilled in Jesus. And we are part of that story, that ongoing story. We think Jesus came to earth to offer us a private kind of salvation, that God's purpose is all about I, me, and mine. That is not the case. As McClung writes, following Jesus 
is not a private matter. It is not for you to work out on your own, for yourself and by yourself. Being a follower of Jesus is about something bigger than what I believe and how I live. You are part of God's people if you follow Jesus. And God's people are in this world for God and others, not themselves. Being a disciple of Jesus is about conforming our lives to the grander story of his life and purpose on the earth together with other followers of Jesus. I think this is so foreign to us, isn't it? Isn't it? Salvation is so private and so personal. It's all about me. And yet, we're told throughout the scriptures that we are part of a, a community, that we are part of God's grandest story and purpose that is being outward, that has been out, outward from Genesis right up uh, through to Revelation. And we're living in that place where the end has not come and we are, we are placed in a strategic time and a strategic place to be a part of God's purpose. The moment we give our lives over to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we become part of God's chosen and elect people represented by the red dots in the slide. To be God's chosen and elect most certainly has to include discipleship. We looked at Luke chapter 9 several Sundays ago in which Jesus said that everyone who wishes to come after him must deny himself, take up the cross daily. Salvation is not the context here, nor is Jesus teaching that we must be perfect. Primary and total allegiance to Jesus in every area of our life is what Jesus has in mind. God's means of glorifying himself has always been through creating and forming for himself a distinct community of people who follow and believe in him, who live by very contrasting values and principles in every aspect of life and in every day of the week. This is what we mean by the term whole life discipleship. Every day of our lives matter to God, not just Sundays. Simple, but I want to repeat that every day of our lives matter to God, not just Sundays. God is equally invested in activities we engage in, engage in that are outside the church as much as those activities that we engage in inside the church. He takes a, a keen interest, for instance, in the fields of the arts, business, economics, education, health, the media, politics, family, science, and technology, just to name a few. Another way of putting it is this. We do not just go to church on Sundays. We are the church from Monday to Saturday. We do not just go to church on Sundays. We are the church from Monday to Saturdays. We're to bring every part of our lives, every area of life, every day of the week as living sacrifices.
to God. There's a credibility that comes to our witness when people see the gospel being outworked in our lives. It gives us the platform to be able to give the reason for the hope that we have. So every time we gather, we're to encourage one another. We're to remind ourselves of the fact that because we are God's chosen and elect, we can make all the difference in the world in our front lines. The second word is the word exile. Now, in the Old Testament, exile refers to the dark period of Israel's history when they were forcibly evicted from their homeland, first by the Assyrians followed by the, and then followed by the Babylonians. This was an act of God's judgment for their continuous rebellion and unrepentant hearts. But Peter is not using the word here to draw a parallel. The small scattered communities he was writing to are exiles, not because they're being displaced from their homeland. In the Greco-Roman world, heaps of people did not live in their place of origin. The scattered communities of faith are exiles and suffering most certainly not because of God's judgment, okay? But rather because the people around them find their faith strange confronting and off-putting. And take Jesus' claim, for example, that he is the only way, he's the only truth, and he's the only life. And that there is no name under heaven given by which anyone can be saved. It was and is still considered an offensive and intolerant view, right? So, the scattered communities of faith are exiles, not literally, but sojourners because they're citizens of heaven and not of this world. That is how Peter is using the word exile. But from another vantage point, Peter is wanting them to make a connection between their context and the people of Israel in exile when they were vanquished and forcibly moved to Babylon back in the 6th century B.C., living among people whose values, who believes, and practices were vastly different from theirs. The Babylonians were wanting Israel to move into the city, assimilate, and lose their distinctiveness as God's people. That's why they took the Israelites there. And they were hoping that within two or three generations, the Israelites would just blend in and become part of the Babylonian culture. In reaction to this, there were false prophets who said to the Israelites, Babylon is an ungodly city. It is unfit for God's people. You'll be contaminated by them. Their values are so ungodly, so anti-God. If you want to keep your distinctiveness as God's chosen and elect, stay away from the city. Stay away from the inhabitants. Let's keep to ourselves at every possible opportunity. Keep contact with the city and its people to bare minimum. If you want to maintain your spiritual identity and distinctiveness as Christians, don't let your kids mingle with them. Don't spend too much time with your neighbors. They will convert you to their ways. 
But God, through the prophet Jeremiah, to the shock of the Israelites, said something extraordinarily radical and totally unexpected. He told the Israelites that while in exile, they're to serve, they're to seek the welfare, prosperity, and peace of the city out of their distinctiveness as God's people, out of their distinctiveness as God's chosen and elect. Go in, but maintain your distinctiveness. Go in and serve while you maintain your distinctiveness as God's chosen and elect. They're to be neighbors to their neighbors and serve their communities out of their distinct spiritual identity. That was the point that Peter was underscoring with his readers. He's encouraging them to continuously look for ways to live out the implication of the gospel, to shine the light of Jesus in their front lines, rather than succumb to the temptation of withdrawing and isolating themselves from their hostile communities because life is hard, we're being persecuted, so let us pull back, let us isolate ourselves, and let us build Christian enclaves. Let's hang out with each other because you get me and I get you, but see? And so often we do that. We, we, we create this us and them dichotomy, and it's not helpful. We don't gather on Sundays uh, for that reason, to pat ourselves on the back, to tell ourselves how wicked our front lines are, how ungodly people are, and it's so good to be with one another. Oh, just, just, to, just to feel clean, have a shower on a Sunday before we get polluted and contaminated again during, sun, uh, during the week. That's not the purpose of our gathering. Instead, when we gather, we celebrate God and what, who, he, who he has been to us, his provision to us during the week, but also his work through our lives during the week, right? And that requires a paradigm shift. We come and tell stories, share stories, stories that include our struggles for sure. Oh, this week has been so hard at work. Ah, oh, this person oh, drives me balmy and it's so hard to love him or love her the office politics oh my grandkids were really up the wall this week they drove me up the wall i, I please pray for me so those are the kinds of conversations we can have like peter's readers we're all scattered, aren't we, all over Brisbane, spending a majority of our time engaging in non-church-related activities. If you look at the, at the breakdown of our average week, of the 168 hours, if you deduct, say, 48 hours for sleep, that's 23%, and 10 hours, that's 6%, for church-related activities, and I'm being very, 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 very generous here, All right, 10 hours, oh, 10 hours. You spend 10 hours at Windsor Road doing stuff related to Windsor Road. That still leaves us 110 hours or 65%. I think it's 
Did I change? Yeah, 65%. Yes, okay. 65% of our waking hours. Think about the time that we have. What are we doing with those times? How do we view the 110 hours we have? The thing I want to say to us is the 110 hours present to us incredible opportunities to be directly involved in God's mission on our front lines. Whoever you are, whatever stage of life you may be at, wherever you are and whatever you do, God wants you to know this morning that you have been set apart by him and you've been set apart for him to make all the difference in the world on your front lines until he calls you home. Please, please, please let us not confine our Christian spiritual life and our responsibilities as Christians and the gifts that God has given us to what happens only within the fall walls of the church and on certain days of the week. We are not to put all of our eggs, if you like, into the Sunday basket, as it were. And I say that at great risk, because some of you might go, oh, yes. Sorry, Mark, I can't do this on Sunday. I can't. That's okay. That's okay for me. I, I prefer that we're engaging our front lines. And if it means if, if you can't be involved as much, good for you. I certainly don't want church activities and church programs to be a hindrance to what God wants to do in your front lines through you. And that's why I intentionally set up the church the way it does. We, we don't have many, pro if any, the only two things that we have at Windsor Road is what? You tell me. What do we have at Windsor Road? Two things, two organized activities. Somebody yell out. LTG, Live Together Groups, and Sunday service. That's it. That's it. Oh, there are prayer meetings, but that was, that's organic on a Friday. That just happened on its own, has a life of its own. I deliberately don't put on programs, put on activities for that reason, because that could severely curtail your ability to be involved in your front lines. We're not on planet Earth to kill time until we die. Please, please, please. Don't think of your life like that. So as you can see, being on mission with Jesus is not necessarily doing more, but seeing yourself and what you're already doing in your front lines with fresh eyes, with the eyes of God. Let me conclude by sharing with us a snippet of John Wesley's life who served and sought the welfare, prosperity, and peace of his city and nation out of his distinctiveness as God's chosen and elect and in exile. Over two centuries ago, God did not just use John Wesley to bring spiritual revival to England, resulting in thousands coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus, but the revival also led to transformation that would affect the entire nation and beyond. For Wesley, 
national reform and transformation were simply inevitable byproducts of individual lives being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. What God accomplished through Wesley was simply extraordinary. It is easy to forget that the England that Wesley lived in was godless and cruel. During the Industrial Revolution, thousands moved into the cities in search for a better life. And we're seeing these trends today. Working conditions were horrific. Men, women, and children worked long hours in inhumane and unsafe conditions in factories and mines. Wages were pitiful, and hunger was widespread. Alcoholism and sickness reached epidemic proportions in overcrowded slums and outhouses. Newborns were left on the streets. Children of the poor, instead of attending school, they would be working in factories and mines as young as four years of age. Can you imagine a child as young as four working in mines and factories? In textile factories, I quote, children served as scavengers, tying broken threads on the moving machines and crawling under moving parts to pick up loose cotton. Some were scalped while their hair was caught. Some had their hands crushed. Others fell into the machinery and died. In match factories, little ones died from breathing phosphorus. If they lived, the phosphorus rotted their teeth. In mines, Children had to pull coal cars or carry heavy loads of coal on their backs. Mine owners could have used horses or mules. Get this. Mine owners could have used horses or mules, but animals were too expensive to replace in the event of cave-ins, which were frequent. Despite having knowledge of these horrific working conditions, the church turned a deaf ear to the poor. Established churches were more concerned about being comfortable. Then came John Wesley, who challenged the status quo. And after a life-changing encounter with God that left his heart strangely warmed, he began preaching the gospel to others, particularly the poor, which led to one of the largest, most radical social movements of all time. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands came to faith and were disciple in small groups, learning, honesty, accountability, godly living, leadership, etc. By 1798, the Methodists, as Wesley's followers were called, reached the 100,000 mark. They believed that God had called them to reform the nation. Wesley emphasized the holistic message of the gospel. It was not enough to save souls, people's minds, people's bodies, and the, entire, the environment needed saving too. And so he opened a clinic, a bookstore, free school, shelters for the vulnerable. He set up spinning and knitting shops. He studied medicine himself so the destitute could be helped. Before Wilberforce, the famous anti-slavery campaigner was even born, Wesley attacked slavery and stirred up the nation's conscience to the evils of exploiting the poor. Wesley's convictions led him to establish workers' rights and safety in the workplace. 
According to David Lloyd George, the PM of UK during, the, during and after World War I, the Methodists were, primary, were the primary advocates and leaders of the trade union movement for more than 100 years. It was the Methodists who led that. Wesley's life message had an impact on a guy by the name of Samuel Plimsoll, an English politician, social reformer, and Bible-believing businessman who spoke out against the greed and callousness of ship merchants who didn't care about overloading their ships with cargo. If their ships sunk, all they cared about was recovering their losses from insurance claims rather than the loss of lives. To combat this evil, he invented a safety device called the Plimsoll Line, a set of markers in the hull of a ship to ensure that ships were not overloaded, thus saving thousands of lives. Isn't that amazing? Something like that. Plimsoll line. I'll think up of ways to save lives. And that save lives, literally. Others touched by Wesley's revival worked for reform in orphanage, mental asylums, and prisons. Wesley was truly a man who was distinct for the world, distinct from the world, and for the world. It was distinct from the world, for the world. Doing all the good he could, by all the means he could, in all the ways he could, in all the places he could, at all times that he could, to all the people that he could, and for as long as he could. Let's pray this prayer together in response. I'd like us to pray this slowly. Let the words marinate uh, in our hearts as we offer our prayer sincerely to the Lord. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father God, that we are your church, the body of Christ in the world. We're grateful for our Sunday life and the worship that equips us for the days when we are apart. Help us see afresh the possibilities of our everyday lives. May we know your presence with us in the pressures and the potential of the weak. Help us to leave traces of grace wherever we are and whatever we do. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.